0: Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Monday, November 15th, start of another week. We talk about the explanation about airborne COVID-19 that came from Dr. Teresa Tam. The timing of it was interesting. Late in the afternoon on Friday, and many epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists saying, you just figured this out? Because they've known for well over a calendar year, some as many as 18 months, when we wondered... What's the best ways to risk mitigate from COVID? What's the best ways to prevent it? What can we do to avoid being in spaces that have a little more risk? Everything's got risk in life. Driving a car does, okay? Running a marathon does, but how do we avoid and how do we avoid maximizing our risk and how do we get in tune with minimizing our risk? Well, we talk about that at the top of the show. Marie Hennan, a criminal lawyer and author, will join us. The TDSB back in touch with her about a potential book club talk with teenage girls. The decision last week was that they didn't want her there. And we talk about that as well as elements of her new book. Chris Parker, the Bulldog from WGR in Buffalo, documents the hard, hard, difficult season it's been for the Buffalo Sabres so far. More off the ice with attendance than anything else. Leafs Sabers was a ghost town. Barely 6500 according to some in the stands. They announced the crowd at just over 8000. Unheard of numbers for a Leafs Sabers rivalry game. It's all coming up on the Toronto Today podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, so eager to have our next guest on. Let me set this up for you in case you don't know the story and I'll do it as quickly as I can. And to me, uh the TDSB, uh they're having a year They're having a year. It's not easy to be in education right now, but they're having a year. There's a book club for teenage girls. It's called A Room of Your Own, and it's existed close to a half decade. Tanya Lee has organized this book club, and she had booked a couple really interesting speakers, one of which is our next guest. The other one, by the way, uh, is a woman named Nadia Murad, who's won a Nobel Prize, and uh, she's written a book called The Last Girl, My Story of Captivity and My Fight Against the Islamic State. Uh, that's pretty triumphant, and uh, she was told um, by uh, Tanya Lee was told by the TDSB. Well, that's not good. We can't have that speaker. Which you know you'd understand. You'd ask why. Well, it could foster Islamophobia. Um, that's really a shocking statement, and in a greatly concerning nation, statement of people educating kids. Uh, our next guest as well was told uh, that an event wouldn't be featured with her. She is lawyer Marie hennen uh, and uh, she's written a new book. And the concept was there that the school board's equity department felt a chat with Miss hennen and, and these, you know, brilliant, you know, teenage girls who are aspiring to move on and and, and become whatever they want to become. That would be also uh, the wrong message. Miss Lee's quote, they told me straight out, no, because she defended Jan Gomeshi. And how do you explain that to little girls? Her new book is called Nothing But the Truth, A Memoir. Uh, I listened to her chat with uh, our national host, Roy Green, a fascinating interview over the weekend. And she's kind enough to spend some time with us now on Toronto Today. Miss Hannon, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for the time.
1: Thanks very much. Good morning.
0: Congratulations on the book. I heard you uh, with Roy. but I, uh, And I also heard you mention that there was, um, to some extent, a reach out uh, from the director of education for the TDSB. What it, how did that manifest itself? and where is there an invitation that may be um, you know coming again for you to be part of this this book club talk?
1: Uh, we're certainly going to discuss that um, and uh, certainly uh, hopefully uh, have uh, some productive conversations. And my hope is something positive actually comes out of this for uh, young students. Uh, In the future, Uh, the book club is really an important opportunity, particularly for young high school girls uh, to go and to have a voice and to engage. And uh, it's important to
0: have that available. Did you feel the emotion of being censored when this first happened, Marie?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, I've been feeling that emotion for an awfully long time. (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, I've gotten used to it. Um, You know, I think the the, uh, emotion I feel is really not uh, a personal one, but uh, one that's shared with the public, which is a concern that we feel, first of all, young people uh, need to be shielded and protected from critical thought, from engaging, from thinking, from things they may not agree with, uh, because they're just not smart enough to figure it out. And I think nothing uh, could be further from the truth. Uh, so it's frustrating that, in our education system, and I can tell you it's not limited to high school, universities mm. are very much in the throes of this. Uh, the approach uh, to to shield uh, students as though they'll faint if if someone says something you don't agree with um, is silly and it, it's so it's so much the antithesis of what we think about uh, a vibrant, open uh, education that is going to develop and create leaders and thinkers and uh, people who come up with great ideas for our society. So that's what's frustrating to me about it.
0: Annan is our guest, uh, her book, Nothing But the Truth of Memoir. Um, I was going to bring that up about universities and colleges right now they feel so different than when I went and I would guess you went where it was exactly that, where you'd hear a diverse range of opinions. I remember being in a Middle East politics class in second year. I'm a political science major. And I mean, it would it would kick off sometimes. But guess what? The debate would end. Everybody would leave. Nobody would try and get anybody fired. Nobody would get expelled. But it 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 was vigorous, um, you know, emotional debate. And I thought, I'm learning from this. This helps people evolve their opinions. Do you worry about university campuses and classrooms that that's, that's really limited compared to 15, 20 years ago? Uh,
1: very much so. And unfortunately, I went to university even longer than that, Greg. So
0: I don't know about that. <laughs> um, and,
1: uh, and so absolutely. I mean, that is very much uh, the concern. I, you know, I think people have a really um, confused idea about... What is hate speech, which obviously is something nobody should be uh, exposed to? And what may be offensive or out of the box or, or something you quite simply don't agree with? And I think we have to remind ourselves, you know, w- when you go back to the 60s, for example, people who were opposing the Vietnam War were put into that category, were put into a category of people you were not allowed to hear from because it was, you know, it would be too offensive. So the problem is our sense of what is correct. Uh, you know, morally and socially changes, and it should, it should evolve. But the way it evolves is by engaging in speech, even, you know, ideas that you do not agree with. It's awfully hard to challenge something when when you don't know what it stands for. Uh, So burying things and insulating people, particularly students, is completely wrongheaded.
0: If you were to say, if someone said, hey, if your agent said, let's plan a campus book tour, let's let's send you across the country, there's no COVID, so not, don't worry about that, nothing but the truth of memoir, and let's go to college campuses, how would you feel about that? Would you say, that's a fantastic idea, I, I hope there's an open exchange and, and debate of concepts, or would you say... That's a bit of a trap. There's a lot of stand-up comedians. There's a lot of pol- ex-political figures that don't want to be on college campuses, especially in the States, because they fear they're getting trapped. Someone's videotaping with their phone. They'll take something out of context, and, and boom, it goes viral.
1: No, I, I would absolutely welcome it. And I have spoken at college campuses. I was uh, a professor at a law school for many, many, many years. Uh, I love engaging with students. I love uh what they have to say. I love addressing their questions and encouraging debate. Um, You know, the idea of, I think people think of shock talkers and sort of that's the paradigm, but that's valueless. You know, when you go out and you have an opportunity to speak to students, the idea is to engage and to promote thought and to promote critical thinking and to make yourself available to answer questions. That's all positive. And I I would love to do that, and I have done it um, historically you know, it gets frustrated when people are out there, you know, objecting to you coming before they even know what you're talking about or have never heard you speak before. Um, you know, that sort of reactive behavior is extremely frustrating to deal with. Mm. And that would be the only thing that, that would dissuade me. So it's not the taking out of context. It's the, Mm. okay, here we go again, because people are objecting to you, opening your mouth before you've opened your mouth. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, I hear I hear that loud and clear. Lawyer and author uh, Marie Hennon, our guest on Toronto today. I I you mentioned it earlier. You you know, you're you're you can handle the scrutiny, you can handle criticism, you can handle some pushback. I can't imagine what was your observation when you hear about the scenario I laid out with Nadia Murad, where she she writes this book, this harrowing tale of her existence, all that she escaped from, all that all the adversity personal and and otherwise she fought through. And they say, well, we're going to disinvite you because your explanation of fighting against the Islamic State could foster Islamophobia. It's ludicrous.
1: Well, I, I think they were, first of all, what was concerning is they were fundamentally confused about what Islamic State referenced, which was ISIS, not states that are Islamic, uh, or governments that that are Islamic. So uh, yeah, that's very concerning when your educators don't know what they're talking about. Oh, that was
0: the misunderstanding? Think, the understanding no, what ISIS yes, was? I think,
1: I think they didn't understand what ISIS, that Islamic State referenced ISIS, oh. which, number one, is profoundly uh, concerning but then doubling down when Tanya Lee takes the time to express herself Mm -hmm. and tell them uh, to preclude students from and this is a voluntary book club by the way, it's not part of the curriculum Um, to preclude students from exposure to the the trials of Yazidis which is, you know, uh, an international crisis, uh, to preclude them from hearing somebody who has stood extraordinary struggles I, I just don't Understand why on earth you wouldn 't want students to know about this you wouldn 't want students to ask questions about this uh, it's just uh, it 's unprincipled and worse it 's uneducated.
0: The book is nothing but the truth of memoir um, when you take When you take the gomeshi case, Marie, um, I know you can 't talk about the intimacies of the case itself except with what 's in the book and it 's fascinating what i 've read so far. Um, do you, do you see that and go, no matter what happens here, my life's going to change. Did you predict that for yourself? And has it changed to the point that you thought it would?
1: No, I mean, I, I, I didn't predict, uh, any of that at all. Uh, y- you never really know what will capture, um, public attention. It was impossible candidly, to predict that that would, uh, you know, it's important to no, know Mr. Gameshi was acquitted, um, um but you know, it, it was impossible to understand the impact. It was impossible to understand how it would be reacted to on a go-forward basis. I, I I understand it now, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight and thinking of the context and and all of it. But no, I, I had no no sense that that was going to be the result.
0: It's it is. I know you you know uh, you just did a a couple of recent high-profile cases, but when you take it. It is at that time, and we're coming into a very much, uh, you know, we've been been in a social media age for seven, eight years by that point in time. It's by far the highest profile media case one could possibly take, though. So, you know, you know, it's going there.
1: You you know that cases, you certainly know when cases are in the media, that is evident to you. But what it is about a particular case uh, or you doing the case is it's just impossible to predict because. You know, in in this country, uh, media and in particular, real media, real journalists have their own views as they should. So you don't know what aspect of any case is going to be something that goes viral. Now, you add to it social media, uh, which uh, involves everybody, including people sitting on their on their couch who haven't come to court. Uh, Sure, it becomes uh, it it becomes it can be dynamite. It can be uh, extremely uh, combustible. And uh, certainly that was one
0: such case. Well, what I've, that's what I've seen from social media is everybody has a law degree, uh, everybody can host a radio talk show and everybody can be an NFL or an NHL coach. <laughs> I've noticed those things. They've yeah. all got they've all got that on their LinkedIn page apparently. I didn't realize people were that diverse, but
1: yeah, All in 140 characters, <laughs> right? That's amazing. It's, it's amazing. It's
0: utterly amazing. <laughs> um I hope to talk with you again. What's what tell us what the next step could potentially be? Are are you hopeful there's I guess resolutions—the best word I can use—or or a step forward. I, I, I think people want to yeah. s- want to see you speak to these these young girls.
1: Well, I can tell you, Tanya Lee is proceeding with the uh, the book club on November eighteenth uh, for students not at the TDSB. Uh, I look forward to speaking to the director and hopefully getting this back on track, and more importantly, really just taking this opportunity uh, to hopefully solidify this and to do something. Uh, productive uh, mm. and, and have something solid for the students and, and try to figure out how this happened and how to ensure it doesn't happen in the future and that um, our educators are uh, on the right track. Uh, and I, I think the director mm. is hopeful. The director of education is hopeful as well. And uh, I'd like to turn this around a little bit and make it productive.
0: I love that. Teachable moments. Uh, yeah. that, that's that's what and, and teachable moments for teachers, uh, ironically. Thank you very much for the time. Congratulations on the book. Nothing Thank but the you. truth of memoir. I hope we get a chance to chat again. It's wonderful to make your acquaintance. Thanks for making time for our show. Thanks, Greg. Take you bet. Uh, that's Marie Hennan joining us. At 5 o'clock on Friday, you might have missed this. Dr. Teresa Tam has, of course, been uh, front and center. Many uh, health officials have been. And uh, she dropped on Friday afternoon a bit of a, you know, a bit of a tweet storm. That's unusual. Sometimes, uh, you know, public health officials Yeah, and, you know, someone's potentially running their account because it's done properly. And, you know, it's got a sense of timing to it. It's all synchronized. So she wrote this 5 8 p.m. On Friday. What ca- and you know, the concept of the Friday news dump, right? A lot of us talk about it in the media. But let me clarify, it's for organizations to lay out bad news so that you will kind of it, it gets lost in in the uh, in the ether, if you will, because we're fo- focusing on something else. We're turning our attention away from the news cycle. This is why our Monday show, you can imagine, you got to review a lot of what's happened in the last three days. So I'm going back to Friday because I bet you the majority of you didn't see this. We're all news hounds in our own respect, but you need to know this if you don't already. Here's what she writes on Twitter. This is Dr. Teresa Tam. She's the obviously the chief public health official of Canada. I've never liked that term top doctor, and that's never not personal. I've used it. I'm sure I've been guilty of using it, but I've never quite liked that. Like we don't have this isn't the BCS. We don't have rankings for these people. Um, this is just the job that she has. And it's, and she ascends to that. and And someone deemed her worthy of doing that at a certain point in time. Um, by the way, I should point out she's not an epidemiologist or infectious disease specialist, and neither is Dr. Kieran Moore and neither is uh, Dr. Eileen DeVilla. So I love li- I love talking to epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists because often they're not politicized. Those three people I mentioned are I'm not saying they're not trying to do the best job they can, but there's politics involved. I don't think we dispute that. I don't think they could dispute that. Here's what she writes. Since the outset of the pandemic, we've learned a lot about the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. She's working some hashtags in there just to to get things trending also. Importantly, we've learned how the virus can linger in fine aerosols and remain suspended in the air we breathe. What? Right? It's an aerosol virus? That's not something that she said before. That's not something that I've heard Dr. Kieran Moore or Dr. David Williams or... I've never... Public health officials have not told us this. I wonder, and you must wonder too, what kind of research was, wh- were they at? Were they at this all night? Thursday the, the uh, 11th, Remembrance Day evening, going into Friday the 12th? That's an outstanding finding. That's remarkable. They must have, so they just found that out. Wait a minute, you're asking. Wait a minute. Are they finding that out on Friday, or are they telling us that on Friday? Always got to ask those, those, you know, secondary and tertiary questions. When did you know this? How did you know it? And when did you know it? It's all these journalism questions. How, when, why? You got to ask these type of questions. She goes on, much like expelled smoke lingers in poorly ventilated spaces, SARS-CoV-2 virus can remain suspended in the air, with those in close proximity to the infected person inhaling more aerosols, especially in indoor and poorly ventilated, ventilated spaces. No kidding. Wow. That's re- like, I, I, I wish we'd been talking about that on this, you know, on this radio station or, or the shows that I've done since, I don't know, October at least. I would venture to guess August of 2020 because you have to pass that information on when you know it. And there's two things at work here. One, if you're just finding that out now, you're not doing a very good job uh, at your job. And secondly, if you know before and you don't mention it until 5.08 p.m. on Friday in a bunch of tweets, and what, 20% at most of the entire Canadian population is on Twitter? I don't even think it's that high. Um, Then you're also creating speculation and innuendo as to when you knew this. This is a problem. So then she goes on and documents mask types. something our friend Ryan Imgren, something many other people have advocated for. If you're going into a long term care home, as I've gone into for my father in law, they make me take off a cloth mask and put on a tiny blue medical mask, the kind of masks that really don't do much to trap um, aerosols or prevent aerosols from going where they will go. We've talked before about educators and healthcare workers needing better PPE. So she writes this. This is why wearing a well-fitted and well-constructed mask is so important when you're spending time in indoor public or private spaces with others outside of your immediate household. (sighs) We're 20 months into this. We're 20 months into this, and you've had people begging and pleading the public health officials because for some reason, there's an element of the population. I don't know who they are who will only listen to these people, and they will take what these people say as gospel. Okay? When they tell you that we got to close things down and close golf courses and tennis courts and playgrounds and whatnot, you make people think there's something wrong with the outdoor air. I saw it pure as day for weeks on end. Little kids with masks on in playgrounds. Are the parents putting those on because they think you could catch SARS-CoV-2 from a slide or a jungle gym? or monkey bars, or one of those teeter-totters that's a lot safer than the ones that, you know, propelled us into the sky in 1978 if one of the bigger kids jumped off? I don't know, but this is information that would have been really helpful to us months ago. So why is it coming now? I don't have a great answer for that. But it's incredibly disappointing, so much so that many people decided that's worthy of a call-out and even people that I would disagree with on the nature of lockdowns and um, vaccine mandates for little kids and and lots of things like that. Um, Joe Vipond is a doctor in Alberta. At the height of the Alberta crisis a couple months ago, he was very prominent front and center. He describes himself on Twitter as MD trying desperately to save his children's future. And he notes, uh, the biggest safety and health failure that's ever occurred in this country is the lack of acknowledgement that COVID is airborne. Um, He links to a uh, page that notes the CDC relaxed protective gear guidelines after an intense lobbying campaign. And this isn't about, well, we need we need PPE for the for the uh, the hospital workers. So we got to tell you that not to don't be hoarding masks right now. Remember when we couldn't find masks in the very early days? It needed to be said. We will get you masks and they're important. Use whatever you have around the house. Use whatever you can, a scarf, a piece of cloth, anything, a bandana, and cover your mouth and nose when you go into a grocery store or you go into a crowded environment because we need the masks for our healthcare workers and even our educators. And we weren't doing that. Now, school didn't reopen for us in the spring, but you see where I'm going. Let me bring this up as well before we close. It's something that we talked about for ages last week and I push back on on, uh, on Dr. Peter Uni's guidelines, if you will. He didn't actually advocate for anything. It just was a lot of, to me, fear-based paranoia. Here it comes. Here comes Delta. It's coming to get you. It's this and that. Well, not in the big cities we documented last week. And that's been, people have, have basically emphasized that and we're still in the same place. Dr. Zane Chagla, who we have on this show, points out, still odd to see, but Ontario's hotspots are clearly not Toronto, York, Peel, and Hamilton. Amen, brother. Need to consider this and how policy is enacted. There are large clusters of unvaccinated individuals, often very closely linked, but Delta is finding its way into them quickly. The positivity rate in Haldimand and Norfolk is five point two three percent. In Peel, that's one point six six. And Peel is heavily vaccinated. They're almost at ninety percent at a higher percentage than Toronto proper. Sudbury's at 5.13%, North Bay Perry Sound at 4.41%. But Hamilton, 1.69. Ottawa, 1.71. So you see where the spread is coming from. And as Dr. Chagla points out, we're going to see patient movement into urban centers, the opposite of what the first wave was. Congratulations to all of us. We've done the work. We've done the lifting. So this isn't about people going out. Like the, the big cities get a lot of sticks sometimes. It's nice living here, but we get a lot of crap sometimes from outside the big cities. We don't deserve it here. And we need to push back against some of these doctors that want something that's province wide. No, no, no. We're heavily vaccinated. We know how to risk mitigate. And everything has to be done regionally from now on. Everything. And I'm sure Dr. Chagla would say no different. We had Dr. Colin Furness on who said no different either last week. Strange world we live in when we're just realizing now that the top doctor, if you will, for Canada is telling us we're dealing with an airborne virus when we've had epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists saying it on this radio station for 15 months, 15 months, something's wrong when that's the case. So many people weighed in on the streaming debate. It was announced Friday morning. We kind of, it's kind of a lead story for us Friday morning that streaming, which was only for math was going to be uh, eliminated in the ninth grade throughout all of Ontario but it will still exist for 10th grade. This hits right home in our household. We had parent teacher chats last week about our uh, our grade eight boy, and we would have been ready to pick courses for him, and we still are in the next couple months. But everybody's going into the same pool. Look, I think it's something that has a, a ton of sides. And I think there's even a couple teachers reached out to me, and they said we were listening to your conversation. Their point is, and they're high school teachers Sometimes it's it's really difficult even to remedy problems by the time you get to ninth grade. A lot of habits are ingrained. Your household scenario is also ingrained. And I always go back. I'm going to reference my kid again. I apologize for it. Not everybody's a parent. But I remember the first year he played competitive soccer. The coaches said to him, we cannot guarantee equality like equal playing time. Don't come to us and talk to us about playing time if you're a parent. Clearly, you shouldn't do that. But we will guarantee equal opportunity to play. We won't play favorites here. Here's the problem. A lot of school boards do. And a lot of schools do. And a lot of guidance counselors do. And a lot of principals do. And it's problematic. No one would deny that. So how do we fix it? And is eliminating streaming the big fix? Dr. Ban for is a postdoctoral researcher in education at York University. It's been forever since you've been on. I don't know why. I always enjoy our conversations. And, and I know this is a, a topic that is really, really important to you. And you've done a lot of study on it. Thanks for making the time for me. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate being back on. Totally. Um, what's your thought? What was your instantaneous reaction to the announcement that we were moving just from math and, and moving towards the entire realm of ninth grade next fall for boys and girls to, uh, to be in the same, uh, as I said, the same academic pool?
2: Oh, I'm like, well, we're now uh, aligned with the rest of Canada because Ontario is the only jurisdiction still streaming grade nine, um, and I think that because we're uh, such a large uh, province that is really insular, we tend to think that we're what we're doing is what everyone else is doing. So I think there's just a lot of misunderstanding about this uh, announcement, and of course I understand the cynicism around it because it's coming from a government that has a history of, um, of, you know, underfunding and, uh, undervaluing public education.
0: Well, I hear that. And, and yeah, we were in, I think two years ago, we were getting ready for, uh, you know, end of 19 into 20, we were starting to have strike days and days of action. We, it looked like we were going to be in, in, you know, really in the long term having some problems, getting agreements hammered out COVID happens. Those agreements take place but we've got we've got a crisis in education don't we and and not just because of the pandemic we had some crisis points prior to the pandemic before all this online learning before all these teachers were were fried out the back and forth of what the last two years have been
2: entirely and i and i think that's the spirit that i'm understanding a lot of pushback from educators is that they're really what they're worried about is reflective of the entire public education system, not just a very small segment of, um, you know, a, a student's life in one year
0: of their education career. Do you worry about what I said that there's some um, before grade nine? If if a teacher makes the point that. There's some there's some hard wiring already in before they're 13 or 14 and and the obstacles that kids face, which, again, we got to try and find a way around some of those, whether they're hungry when they go to school, whether they're neglected, whether they're abused. Again, what's the pandemic done? It's exacerbated that. But is there is there an argument to be made that that the kids are coming to high school and a lot of their sadly, sadly, a lot of their fate is determined already?
2: Look, as a, I'm an educator. If I thought that, I shouldn't be in education. I don't think any educator should think that when a student arrives at their classroom that it's a done deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that educators, by and large, uh, recognize that children are always developing and learning, and and it, they're cognitively still developing. So you know, I think that there's that's I think what you point to is a kind of cha- a difference in the perception. Um, and some of the the kind of biases and prejudices that we can come at. Young people with, and then the reality, and and what I hope is the kind of um, understanding from from educators' perspective that there's always opportunity um, for development and change if we if they're well supported.
0: Dr. Behan Farhadi is our guest on Toronto Today with Greg Brady on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. So this is what I see, and this is what I also hear from teachers, and I I think I think they're right about this. They say, look, streaming is streaming can be at its core discriminatory, and it can even be race based. That's a problem but i i look and i wonder uh, is that about the people is that about the guidance counselors is that about the principals and and can we fix that instead of having teachers you know are we going to have teachers forced to teach to the middle to reach the greatest number of students eventually we don't teach to the middle eventually your 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 grade 12 marks matter and when i went to school or OAC marks matter and eventually there's there's a funneling out and some kids are going to university community college and some kids aren't how do you view it
2: I mean, I mean, we've been having this conversation since since 1987. Uh, we first studied de streaming uh, because there was high rates of dropouts. Same case today. There were recommendations uh, to to change into de streaming. We started the process in 1993. It was supposed to last for three years and ended abruptly when the um, conservative government arrived. So we haven't really given this a chance. And um, there has. And the other thing is, this has it has been going on. Limestone District, Toronto District. They've been doing this with um, with success and it's not necessarily this kind of like massive shift from, um, you know, into into sort of stellar uh, universes, mm-hmm. but it's we're seeing improvements and I think that we need to pay attention to that. And again, is the story that we're telling actually grounded in fact or is it our fears? And I think that really um, interrogating where it's coming from and focusing on the larger problem project and crisis of public
0: education is is probably where we should be directing our um, sorry. Oh, yeah, there's there's so many issues in, in, in that department. My thought was, not I ran it past a couple educators, was could we get to the point in January of a grade nine where you can kind of see some separation? There's no doubt that kids get miscast. And unfortunately, they get miscast at times because of background and because of how they look. And that's wrong. But could we get to the point where we're even halfway through an academic year? To me, th- there's a distinction like between house league and competitive sports. You just can't look at a kid and know how they're going to perform. And some of this is, is the work ethic and some of it's their study habits. Some of it's all that stuff. Is there a way we could do it almost halfway through an academic year and get a better sense as to who's struggling, who's struggling even going to the middle and, and who's just kind of who, who's just a brilliant student that might be kind of bored by the idea that they're all in the same group together?
2: I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what that would even look like without, like, extraordinary bias in the system, right? Like, this is, this is a structural problem, and I, I would be really hesitant to, um, to put this in the, in the kind of individual realm. Uh, the definition of systemic inequity is when we're seeing disproportionate outcomes by equity-deserving groups. Like, that's the definition. Um, and if that's the definition of it and we're saying it's wrong and we need to change it, then it has to be a system response. Uh, this is a first step. Like along many many steps, we need wraparound supports. We need smaller class sizes. We need these things, and we need to now we have a state collectively in fighting for these things. And I'm hoping that this is the kind of um, that we sort of all start to focus on on the kind of problems we need to solve that are collective and not necessarily quibble to me about something that is like long overdue.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do do you hear anecdotally from parents that are losing how would I put it faith in the? In the actual public system, it's great to have the means and the wherewithal to go to go private, as it were. But the public system has been frustrating for uh, for a lot of parents over the last couple of years, clearly. And was was, you know, that they, they saw there, like you said, large class sizes. Um, it, the education was starting to suffer for some. And you only get four years at this in high school, especially you can't do it over.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a parent of two kids in the public system as well. And, there's, and I think that I feel like parents, educators are kind of in the same in the same sphere of feeling really um, cynical and, and upset about where our education system is going, but also sort of having hope that we could fight around this. Um, we have decisions to make post pandemic like this is this is the moment where we're going to decide what the future can look like for our children. And, um, you know, we've got we've got decisions to make in the next year. So I'm hoping that we make decisions that prioritize education.
0: Dr. Behan Farhardi, our guest, I got about 45 seconds. How much are you hoping or counting on either the Andrea Horvath NDP or the Stephen Del Duca liberals to, to get education front and center? When we talk about, well, what could be in a, you know, a three hour election debate next spring I hope education doesn't take a back seat. I know there's a ton of critical issues that that equal education, but it better be there. And they better have a platform to explain to the public to be that contrast to what, what we've seen for three years in this province.
2: Look, I agree with you. And, and I will say that what politicians do depend on what we demand of them. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's we need to remember that we really do play a central part in the democracy and not to rely on people out there to to um, to sort of put forward mandates that we should be
0: demanding. Van, you're a great guest. Thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate your passion on the issue. And we'll talk again. Uh, I really do. I really do appreciate the time. Likewise. Take care. OK, uh, Dr. Bayhan Farhardi, our guest. Okay, what a great example of uh, journalism and why you should support journalism, why you're listening to this show right now. You want to be informed, you want to be in the loop, but uh, it doesn't matter to me, Globe, Star, Sun whatever um, support it because you get stories like this and a lot of people on my radar were talking about this story I got texted it from two different people who've never met each other in their life and I started reading it we're like we got to talk about this story uh, Kevin Donovan is a fantastic investigative reporter at the Toronto Star the author of The Billionaire Murders The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman and something quite mysterious happened to him, but it's it's pretty common. He had his car stolen from his driveway, but this was not any ordinary joyride, and he documents it in his uh in his work in the Toronto Star. Kevin, it's Greg Brady. It's great to have you on again. Thanks for making the time for me. Thanks, Greg, and thanks for that shout out to journalism. Totally. Well, not not exactly your your average uh, joyride. Many of us, um, I know, my parents had their car stolen when they were in a movie. They got it back the next day. It was kind of hot wired. Things have changed a little bit. Your car disappears from your driveway. And do I have this right for the audience? Less than 48 hours later, it's at the Port of Halifax, ready to go to the Middle East.
3: You've got that right. Yeah, it was uh, uh, my tracking device showed that uh, it left uh, our driveway in Etobicoke at 3.02 a.m., 3.05. It ends up at a little parkette where they must have disabled the tracking device. And then, yeah, police called me last Monday and said, uh, guess where your car is it's been found it's in Halifax.
0: When were you first aware the car's not in your driveway
3: well uh so it it gets taken uh and then there's this this moment uh when when you realize that oh did I park it somewhere else uh, <laughs> uh call the police uh uh and they uh these days don't come to your house they uh to take a report they just uh, uh take the information over the phone um and, and everybody just assured me that uh, that it would never be
0: seen again kevin donovan's our guest from the toronto star so so yeah walk us through a little bit i definitely want to uh, amplify the story and get people to, to read the article but the, you had something that i found really really interesting in that that they, yeah they're not putting wires together this isn't what you see in the movies there's an electronic signal that they are able to send to your keys inside the house, not just to unlock the doors, but to start the car as well.
3: Yeah, and, and there's, I think, many different ways to uh, to steal a car these days. What I think happened to mine is uh, so my key fobs uh, kept inside the house, uh, not near the door, uh, but I didn't have any other protection, which I now have. We can get into that. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they would have picked up the signal from outside the house, uh, used that to. Uh, um, Send a signal to the car, thinking that I had pressed the the unlock button. Car's open, and then with the Toyota Highlander and I think a lot of other modern cars, there's a there's a port that's a diagnostic report, uh, port underneath the dashboard uh, that if you, you took your car in to get it serviced, they would check to see the health of the car. Uh, they attach to that, they're still in my driveway, it's about a minute later, and uh, they use that to both start the car and also to clone uh, the uh, a new fob. So two new fobs are uh, made. And, and fobs, I mean, in the old days, we had uh, a key that actually inserted into the ignition. Many cars now just have a have a fob, uh, you start the car. Uh, so that's, that's what they did. And then uh, they back out and uh, it was 3.05 in the morning. I didn't get any warning at all. Uh, and then realize that the car's gone.
0: It's a, it's a, and there's a quite, as you know, there's quite a big, uh, you know, this is worth it. This ends up being worth it, not just for the thieves, but for the people that will uh, ship. And it, it's unbelievable that they could explain. And, you know, the idea that we have a harbor and a, and a port should mean, well, there's a legitimate, you know, s- system of checks and balances to make sure tons of stolen cars aren't getting shipped across the Atlantic somewhere else. But it doesn't look like it works.
3: Yeah, and so in my case, according to the police, the uh, customs uh, Canada customs people in uh, uh, Halifax were doing some sort of a sweep, and they did recover uh, two days later thirty cars, including mine. Um, the The port of Halifax is enormous. Um, I wrote, I think incorrectly, in my uh, story that about a thousand of these shipping containers can fit on a ship. Uh, somebody who pays attention to this stuff. You know, there, there's you know, ships that hold 10,000 containers. Uh, Canada, like most countries, is more interested in what comes in, not what goes out. And so while they could theoretically check every uh, container that is going onto a ship bound for the Middle East, they, they just don't have the person power to do that. And uh, so, but in my case, for some reason, I'm not too sure why. I think something is going on behind the scenes where they had a reason to look at these uh, containers. They they found it. Mine was snuggled up against another Toyota Highlander, same uh, sort of vehicle. Uh, the the containers, 40 feet long, can hold comfortably two cars. They can even hang a third one from the roof, but that causes damage to the car. So they don't often do that, and and the the manifest, the the document that describes what's in it. I don't know what mine said. I'm told that sometimes mm. they'll put something uh, fraudulent. They'll say that you know it contains some other devices, uh, uh, dishwashers, for example. Though I don't know how many dishwashers we're sending to the Middle East. Uh, and and the other thing to tell you is that when they opened uh, the container, they were surprised to find. By Ontario plates on it, which you would think the thieves would have removed those, so it could at least look like a new vehicle being shipped overseas. And these mm-hmm. vehicles, two to three times the value uh, where they're going. Um, and there's a concern that uh, that this money, these ill-gotten gains, are going to fund uh, organized crime and terrorism.
0: Did you? Uh, you did remarkable research on this. It feels like as well um, with, with neighborhoods. And I think about this if if I deem my neighborhood and I say to people. Well, you know, if you had to check a box, do you feel like you live in a safe neighborhood or an unsafe neighborhood? Well, a safe neighborhood means, like, I don't expect a home invasion. I don't expect there to be a stabbing. But I feel like there's no neighborhood that's that's proof for this. Clearly, there isn't. And and if anything, the more affluent neighborhoods are going to be where these thieves are looking for vehicles. Plain and simple.
3: Yeah, and it's been interesting, uh, Greg, over the last two days to get responses from people uh, all around the GTA and as far away as Barry. Telling stories of their cars that were were stolen, the, the stories are almost identical to mine. And uh, uh, talking to a man yesterday from Leaside, uh, talking to a man, the uh, a woman, a man and a woman couple whose car was taken from Scarborough, uh, and all this is in the past few weeks. And so, so looking at this and and talking to police, it seems like they move from area to area. So yeah, there's there's no area that that is, uh, is, is safe right now. Uh, somebody who lives up in, in Barrie said, I can't believe it, they, they've, they've come here now.
0: I know uh, I know. if this happens to me, your story is like like fantastic. I think people should print this out. I'm going to have to print your story out, leave it by the front door because if this happens to me, I know my better half is going to accuse me of leaving the keys in the ignition or leaving the door unlocked or leaving the keys on the doorstep or there, there'll be some, I'll be semi-responsible. I'll be a semi-co-conspirator if I don't print your article out and show this can happen to anybody.
3: Yeah, and there are a few things that, that uh, are not absolutely perfect that you can do. You can get these things called Faraday pouches that that uh, stop the signal from coming from your keys that they're not very expensive. I have those, uh, and so as soon as I get out of the car, I tuck the, the key fob into the pouch, take it inside the house. Um, I also use a club, possibly $80 yeah. to buy. Uh, it, it's a deterrent. Um, insurance said you should get cameras. We got cameras, but from what I've seen from some helpful Toronto uh, Residents sending me their camera footage. It's interesting to watch uh, cars uh, being stolen, but the video quality is not enough to see the license plate of the thief. Um, so there's a few things you can do. You can park an older car behind it. If you have a garage, you know, not everybody does in Toronto, obviously, you can put your car in the garage. There's some things that you can do, but police say if the thieves want your car, if they are looking for that specific car that night and they do have a checklist, uh, uh, they're going to take it.
0: So you don't get this back, right? This is now an insurance issue and, and you'll replace the car, but you're not, you're not getting the one back from Halifax.
3: No, I, I'm not. Uh, it happened a month ago. Uh, mm. and so, uh, so although the car was discovered quite quickly, I didn't hear about it until last week, uh, defined. Mm. And by that time, it's a, it was a lease vehicle of quite a new lease. And, uh, they have, um, uh, done mm. whatever they had to do. I'm basically making the same lease payments, uh, uh, have a new vehicle. Mm. There are some items in the car, some tie down straps, some chainsaw blades, things like that, that uh, I'm working on trying to get those back because they belong to me, not the insurance. I was going
0: to ask you about compact discs and snacks, but it's also not 1998, so you probably have cleared most of that, especially no, the CDs. I would no, figure.
3: but I did have two bags of bread flour, uh, <laughs> and uh, I had uh, a double pack of Werther's. Uh, oh, my so, heavens. Um, you know. Uh,
0: well, someone's Christmas stocking is going to suffer or, or benefit, in the, at least in the Nova Scotia area, uh, as a result. It's great. It is great journalism. Thanks very much for uh, for coming on, talking about it. I, I enjoy your conversations. Thanks for having me on, Greg. Kevin Donovan, uh, joining us from the Toronto Star. Okay, tale of two teams in Buffalo right now, Um, but obviously Canadians are not making their presence felt at either Buffalo Sabres games or really Buffalo Bills games until they drop the PCR test requirement, and that's the Canadian government. That's nothing to do with the states. The states took long enough to open the border to us, but it's Canada's decision to make us take a PCR test on the way back, and I'm trying to get a feel for Buffalo Sabres games. They're last by a mile in uh, attendance they list at 79 21 they've had eight home games so far they haven't been good in a long time I know that okay they've been out of the playoffs they haven't won a round since 07 I love that I was still living in the states then covering the Red Wings I love that 07 team and I I wanted that team with Ryan Miller to make the finals now saying that um our next it's like our for our next guest that's like stabbing him in the heart with a butter knife over and over again until we uh, until we penetrate his skin. Uh, Chris, uh, the Bulldog Parker, is a uh, host of Shope and the Bulldog three to six on WGR five fifty. If I start romanticizing about Daniel Briere and Brian Campbell and Ryan Miller, we're going to get off to a really weepy start here, aren't we?
4: Uh, weepy <laughs> or or violent. I don't know. One of the two, I, I, I there's only two outcomes. Neither are good there, Greg. I right.
0: would, I'm great. I would have traveled for that um, cup and, and uh, it was good. And then Detroit was playing Anaheim, highly contentious series there. Prongers on Anaheim that year. And I'm thinking, no, I want Detroit Buffalo. I don't want Detroit Ottawa. There's a connect Canada, but I wanted Red Wing Sabres. I got neither with a boring duck Senators final as we all did. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
4: A lot of regret there. That, that was a, that was a great regular season for the Sabres that I really didn't enjoy because I spent the entire time uh, sort of obsessing about the ducks, because uh, <laughs> I felt like they were the team most likely to come out of the West, and then the Sabres didn't even get there, and it you know it ended in five games with Ottawa in the conference final. And I sort of sat here in my living room staring at the TV going, what the hell just happened? So, well,
0: yeah. and, and Ottawa laid down like a like a puppy uh, getting its belly scratched in the in the Stanley Cup final. So I reached out to you last week, and, and this was an interesting weekend because the Oilers and McDavid come in Friday night. That should be a draw in any hockey market. I know what a good hockey market Buffalo is, and so do you. But they get back-to-back home games, and the Leafs don't usually play there on a Saturday night. It's often a Friday night tradition, and maybe people, you know, spend the weekend in upstate New York or they go to do other stuff. But I, I reached out to you and I said, I'm, you know, attendance is going to be a problem Saturday. And then I see the anthems. I was, I was mortified when you see that on TV for Leaf Sabers. Is it just par for the course, or do you go clearly? We've got no Canadian influx coming to Buffalo Sabers games.
4: No, I mean, th- there's no question. I mean, I, I, I would guess. I mean, I, I haven't watched much of the local news to see if they did any reporting on it, or you know, man on the street with a blue cape and a tinfoil cup. Uh, whether whether any of those folks made it down. I I was speculating on the air on Friday that, you know, maybe some would, you know, consider it worth it. You know, I mean, we all have different, you know, values we'll we'll put on things. And if you've been dying to go to a game, uh, you know, maybe you can deal with the the cost of that test to get back into Canada on a one-time thing. Or like you even said, maybe come down and make a weekend out of it Mm -hmm. and uh, and just make it worth your while. I mean, I, I did the same. Uh, a few weeks ago before halloween my one of my sons and i went up to canada to visit a friend and you know we had to we had to pay for the test but for me it was worth it you know um but you know you mix in the cost of just going to the game and the ticket and all that um yeah they're 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 in tough here greg they've lost mm-hmm. over the years here close to 10,000 10,000 season tickets um so it's really bottomed out uh, all the drama this spring and summer with the Jack Eichel trade, another another year tacked on to the playoff drought, and now no Canadians still until this PCR requirement gets dropped, if it's going to get dropped. I mean, I think um, you know U.S. officials are doing all they can, I think, to pressure Canada into dropping it, but I don't know where that lies right now. Um, I'm hopeful for the Sabers and just for friends of mine in Canada that want to come freely back and forth and not have to spend the extra. 150 to 200 bucks each to get the test done uh so it's it's going to be tough for a while but you know the the Mm. the market here is just everybody is slumbering like it Mm. it just worn everyone out the building isn't in great shape itself and there's a there's a feeling of like i don't know i think the fans feel like the organization has been neglected by the by the ownership but it's
0: a weird one too because you know um it's like a grass is greener you know the ice is smoother on the other side because we look as you know from and you've gone to leafs games you know what that costs you know what that feels like sometimes at weekday games that's that corporate atmosphere there's real fans in Buffalo, and you can go any night. You can go, like, I. the last game I went was Ryan O'Reilly coming back with the Blues the spring. That There's another uh, dagger to your heart. But Ryan <laughs> O'Reilly coming back the year the Blues won, and I'm thinking, i got to come more often. I'm on the other side of Toronto, but to me, it's worth it. An hour and a half, go with three buddies, Sunday 5 o'clock game after NFL season ends. Clearly, there's a ton of Canadians that, uh, like, have you ever gotten data as to how many Canadians own those season tickets that that, that have given them up right now?
4: I, I don't have data at my fingertips, but I, I I feel like I've heard over the years that it's as much as twenty percent of the season ticket base. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you know, now that doesn't account for walk-up or secondary market sales on a Saturday or a Friday when you're playing Toronto, because clearly the building is at best for Buffalo from a from a Sabres fan perspective when the Leafs are here in normal times, it's like a 50-50 split at best. I mean, the numbers have been growing and growing as the Sabres fans here have been more willing to unload those tickets and try to get some of their money back um, on the secondary market. So, um, you know, it's a huge, huge impact not having those fans, you know, liberally able to cross the border and and come to these games. Because there would be, I mean, I have no doubt if Canada could travel freely that that building would have been full on Friday or Saturday night. Yeah. Maybe Friday night too with McDavid here.
0: What does this do to, to the, you know, Pagoula's bottom line? I mean, look, they're in it for the long term. They're in it to get the Bills a new stadium. Also, they've got a Super Bowl contender for quite some yeah. time, it looks like, with, with the Bills. So on that front, everyone's happy. But eventually, look, it's they're not going to go broke. They won't have to sell one of their yachts. But it is a business. The Pagoulas have certainly treated the Sabres that way. And, um, and it's a law of diminishing returns. It's, it's, it's chicken and egg. That few people in the building means a lot less money they can spend on infrastructure. Uh, they, everybody's got a budget.
4: Yeah, I know it's, 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 it's not a good situation at all. Um, but, you know, obviously they can withstand it now, you know, for how, how long do they, do they, do they feel like they can withstand it? I, I, I can't answer that. I don't know. Um, but there's been Greg, I would tell you for a few years now, sort of an uneasy feeling about their hold on ownership with the Sabres. Mm -hmm. And by saying that, I I, I don't mean to imply that they are for sale or that I know that. I certainly don't know that. But it it just, I know they can't get out of their own way over there, it seems. And I think it's got to be endlessly frustrating to them to be where they are. And Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if they can see any light at the end of the tunnel at this point. Because it's just so—it's been so long, and it's so dark over there right now. You know, even you know, the, you get get into the organizational depth chart, and there's some promising kids coming. Mm. But like right now, try selling that to fans. You know, like I, I, I can be as optimistic as anyone, but I don't want to sit on the radio and tell people about this kid and this kid and this kid coming because they just watched Sam Reinhardt and Jack Eichel. Yeah, it, out of town and. You know, so it, it's a tough, it's a tough spot, and and I think ownership is frustrated, and frankly, it looks to a lot of us like that's how they're treating the team, like they're like they're the kid that won't straighten out their grades.
0: I only got sixty. I only got sixty seconds. But yeah, when I see them at the at lumped right at the bottom, they're four thousand behind Ottawa. And you and I know the markets that always struggle. Ottawa, Florida, Arizona, even even a team like New Jersey in the regular season is going to have their struggles. Then when you consider we're shutting the doors for two and a half weeks, right when the NFL season ends, so the players can go to China. That 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 doesn't, that doesn't do anybody's bottom line. The Leafs always bounce back from that. Montreal, the Rangers. But this this could be a really like we're just into this season. I I don't want to doom and gloom it too much. I guess I am.
4: No, it's gonna it's gonna be rough. I mean, I I thought it would be. I was bracing for crowds under ten thousand when we saw you know what it looked like even in the preseason because what they're announcing is nowhere even close to what's in the building. I mean, the the crowds look pretty similar to what was in the preseason, and those are tickets sold. Yeah. And you know, a lot of those are might be brokers or even season ticket holders who just aren't even using them because um, there there are some corporate accounts here, believe it or not. Um, so it's just a tough mm-hmm. it's a tough situation, and 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 I think you could see it coming, but when you see it on TV, yeah. you know, it looks a lot worse than it than 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 you thought it was going to be even.
0: I know you got a massive uh, Bill's Patriots game. I know, I know the Patriots are alive again, that, like that corpse. It's yep. Michael Myers, man. They don't go away very long. It's like Jaws. There's, there were five or six Jaws sequels. They're, they're not dead yet, so maybe we can talk before that game. I'll look forward to it, Greg. Thanks. Thanks so much. Open the Bulldog uh, later today on WGR 550. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Don't forget, subscribe to the pod, rate the pod, and we'll be back with a live show tomorrow, 530 to 9, right here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.